Welcome to the Always On Podcast. I'm your host, Duncan McPherson. And on this podcast, our objective is to empower our audience, which are high caliber fee-for-service professionals, to always be working on their business and on themselves, personally and professionally. On today's podcast, I had a very in-depth conversation with Jeff Savlin, a consultant to enterprising families, and Jeff is the founding principal of Blum and Savlov LLC, which is a family business and wealth consulting firm. As a backdrop, Jeff's specialty is working with families who want their wealth to serve the current and future generations in healthy and productive ways, which as we all know is a substantial growing unmet need that has to be addressed. He engages families at the intersection of family dynamics and ownership management and leadership of shared assets. Jeff speaks in the US and internationally and has been quoted in the New York Times, Family Business Magazine, and also also authors a popular blog, The Family Business Minute. And in this episode, we discussed a philosophy and a process for how to engage a family into not just developing a continuity and succession plan, but also how to buy into ongoing fluid and dynamic planning. You can learn more about Jeff and contact him through his website at blumandsavlove.com. That's B-L-U-M-A-N-D-S-A-V-L-O-V.com. As always, if you like this podcast, please like and share, tell your colleagues, And if you have any ideas or topics you would like to hear on this podcast down the road, just let us know. Thanks for listening. All right, we're going to hit on a very meaningful topic uh, related to family dynamics. We have a thought leader and consultant to enterprising families named Jeff Savlov, who was actually introduced to us by one of our coaches, Scott Hamilton. Scott was adamant that we have this conversation and uh, yeah, this is a very, very meaningful uh, topic in light of demography and all sorts of other forces regarding continuity and secession. So Jeff, welcome to Always On. Thanks for being here. No, thanks for having me. Adamant is pretty strong. Uh, thanks, Scott, for that. <laughs> well, I have a lot of respect for Scott, and uh, he was not going to not let this happen. So I got to know you a little bit and Scott gave me a nice backdrop. But what I thought I'd do for our audience is just come at this with W5. Okay. So here are the questions I'm going to ask you out of the gate. And then it's your challenge to make this interesting to the audience. So first of all, what do you do? Who do you do it for? When did you get started in this uh, specific area. Why does the need exist? Where do you source your clients? And then, of course, how do you engage the entire family into your process? So let's start with the what, Jeff. What do you do specifically? If it's okay, and I think this probably fits into more than one of these, I'd like to start with my background because it really sets the foundation for everything else and makes it make sense. Is that okay? Absolutely. Um, and it probably fits into the, when when did I start? Why did the need exist? And a couple of others all in one. Grew up in a family business. My family had a commercial printing business in, in New York City. My dad was a, uh, he was a, a blue collar guy, high school to the army, learned printing in the, in the Korean War, came back, worked for printers, saved his money, took out a home equity loan and everything he saved and put it, risked it all which I remember my parents having conversation about this. Partly I overheard some of it and was like, wow, this is big. And partly they told me and I thought, wow, they're telling me this directly and it's big and scary. And he risked it all. And it was clear that if it went well, things were going to be tough for a while. And if it didn't go well, things were going to be tough for a while, which as a 11 year old, you're like, so where's the upside, mom and dad? I, I volunteered to, to be involved uh, weekends whenever I could, more in high school and then during and after college, a lot more. And uh, my dad got in over his head. The business got really successful. It grew. I remember Porsche was one of our clients and we had these wonderful high end posters, you know, advertising posters of beautiful cars. I was hanging in my room uh, and I was, 
I was spending as much time as I could outside of, you know, middle school, then high school, then college. Uh, and the truth is dad was in way over his head. He was really stressed out. And uh, uh, Duncan, you want to take a guess who dad took his uh, frustrations out on? He probably kept it inside. <laughs> yeah. If only that were the case. Uh, he took it out on me. He was a, a yeller. And it was a lot of just really humiliating uh, experiences of him yelling at me mm -hmm. when he was really angry at something else or someone else. I was working hard. Nose to the grindstone. Never asked for a penny. I wasn't trying to make money off this. I was trying to help the family. My mom was wise. She saw what was going on. And she found a psychologist that specialized working with families, parents and kids, mostly in business together. She decided not to work just with me and my dad, but with the whole family, my mom and two sisters who weren't involved, which I thought was interesting because this seemed to be, to me, a Jeff and dad problem. And this is really significant to how my career evolved. She said, this is a family issue. I want to talk to all of you. Uh, she did some amazing work. If we had more time on another call, I could get into the details of really what transformed in those sessions. But it was deep and personal and fulfilling, really helped me understand my dad in a new way his life, talking about Latvia. We were talking about my name being Latvian before. Without getting too long-winded, my dad's father uh, was the only one of his family to leave Latvia before World War II. We're Jewish. Uh, the whole family was wiped out. So part of understanding my dad's anger was that he was raised by a man who was completely traumatized, bereft of his whole family, really intense stuff. And all that came out and helped me understand my dad in a new way. Ultimately, that was an amazing experience. And I decided, one, I don't love commercial printing. I was doing this to help the family. Two, dad, you and I are not going to have a really good father-son relationship if we work together. And for both of those reasons, I decided to leave. I went into the corporate world. I worked in sales and marketing, consumer products, technology sectors, had a really good run at a young age. But I was deeply moved by what that psychologist did for us. And I said, I want to do that for people. So that's part of the why I do this. If that's not one of the double the W's, it should be. Why in the world do you do this? Uh, maybe we can add a W. Um, so I trained as a family. I left the business world, went back to grad school, trained family and group dynamics, trained as a family therapist. I did seven years postgraduate work in a psychoanalytic institute. So I'm trained as a psychoanalyst, which people don't do too much anymore. Along the way, I was trained not only to work with families and adults and teenagers, but very young children. And that also comes back in a, in a really significant way in my career. 30 years ago, more or less, I started a private practice doing therapy, talk therapy, counseling. And early on, by coincidence, some of my clients, my therapy clients had generational wealth or operating businesses or some combination. And I got to see in a very up close and personal way that when families share significant assets and they're trying to work together to, to transition from one generation to the next, either from ownership or even management and leadership, right? There's the ownership level where you can own stuff and not work there, as you know. And also we want our kids to be leaders of the business or managers, all those elements. It makes, it makes family life complex. And I like to say family is complex all on its own, right? Poor and working class families have complexity in their families. Wealthy families have it. When you combine the, the complexity that exists normally in a family with ownership of shared assets and how you're going to move forward with that, the complexity increases. And so I decided that there was something, I saw there was a need for something different than what therapists do. And my work as a consultant is different than, than therapy. But back then, 30 years ago, I said, there's a need for something that's not therapy, but lawyers, accountants, wealth managers aren't really trained in this family dynamic space. And so there's a, a need for something in the middle of all that, where, where we can help families with understanding their, their family dynamics, how they communicate and understand some of the opportunities and pitfalls around around sharing wealth and transitioning it from one generation to the next. And I really dove in 30 years ago and really grew that to, to right now. That's where I'm super busy and where I spend my time. I have a small clinical practice where I, I continue to do therapy with clients that I've been seeing for a really long time, but my 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 passion and my effort right now, it's working with, again, uh, business families, legacy wealth families who don't even have an operating business. But when the wealth is so high, it's just like a, a, an operating business. You need leadership. You need governance. Governance is a big piece of what I do. And not so much governance as in like board of directors of a company, but governance mm -hmm. in terms of how do we come together as a family and make decisions? Who's involved? How are we going to pick a leader? How do we share information? 
how does the next generation get educated and how do we decide who gets involved and in what way? Who are owners that are kind of silently on the side and how do we keep them informed about what's going on and who are the owners that are going to have leadership positions and how do we make those decisions? Often families in the past have made those decisions by saying, all right, we have three siblings in the second generation. They each have three kids. One one of those kids from each family line has to be in, a, in an executive role, regardless of if they have the ability that never worked out all that well. And so families really learned they had to come together and make decisions based on, you know, what's best for the family, but also for the enterprise. And that takes a lot of tough conversations, uh, especially if, you know, one of those three siblings has three kids with MBAs that are really crackerjacks, and maybe the other two have kids that aren't interested or aren't competent. How do you define fairness and how do you move forward in a situation like that? So I'm kind of throwing a lot at you, but that's sort of the background, the kinds of clients that I work with um, you want me to take a break and ask a question? You want me to keep blowing through the W's? <laughs> well, first of all, thank you for that. Uh, I can now see clearly why Scott was adamant. Um, you covered a lot of ground there, but I really appreciate you uh, giving us that backstory. I uh, I have I don't know your dad, but I have immense respect for him because I never thought of that era of being in their own sandwich. Uh, and by that, I mean, obviously, yeah. incredibly traumatic backstory of his own. And then the courage to risk it all. And then just getting immersed and and not having a safety net. And yeah. probably not consciously using you as a lightning rod to channel his frustrations. He just <laughs> needed to vent. Um, yeah. Yeah. But it's a lonely world for an entrepreneur, especially first generation self-made. Yeah. And I think what I, I I think what I like the most is your early mentors being your mom and that psychologist and how you latched on to the qualitative side, the bedside manner of the of the psychoanalyst value, because there's so much technical that I'm sure you cover. But I'm sure your clients, as much as they appreciate your core competency, they really appreciate the fact that, A, you're coming from uh, experience, not theory, but you you focus on the emotional side. You know, in this book, the, the Blue Square Method, I highlight the cue because the fee-for-service professional of the future balances quantitative value with qualitative and I think you've landed in a really important sweet spot there. And that's probably why your phone is ringing off the hook. Yeah, thanks. And and one thing I would add is supporting that quantitative and qualitative. I was just just got back from a week in Denver at the Purposeful Planning Institute, PPI.org. It's, it's multidisciplinary. So there's wealth managers, there's philanthropic advisors, attorneys, mm -hmm. accountants, people from behavioral science. And we all come together in this really cool kind of a way through really creative educational breakout sessions and and really personal kind of small group and even dyadic exercises um, to learn how to integrate in the soft side, as it's called, um, or the qualitative uh, aspects. Uh, and a lot of these people are doing very technical things, but they really see the importance of the qualitative, qualitative or soft side. And the other thing I would say, as you mentioned, my mom and the psychologist as mentors, you know, dad was more than a, than a yeller. I might sort of frame it that way, uh, but he certainly, there's something character building and not that that's the way to build character in your kids, but it, there's something character building about having to deal with that and kind of keep your self-esteem together. But on another level, in terms of the qualitative, I remember being young and walking with my dad on a tennis court on the way to the paddle ball courts. He was a paddle ball guy with, you know, the big cement wall and the four guys, you know, hitting the heck out of that little black ball. And we're walking by the tennis players on the way to the paddle ball court. And he said, good morning. And they all said, good morning. And I said, oh, dad, I didn't know you know those guys. And he's like, I don't. I said, but you just said hello to them. He's like, yeah, it's a great thing to just say hello to whoever you met or whoever you meet. And I'd say from that point on, I, I really say hello to anyone who walks by I me. Mean, that's just a small example of one of the many good things I got from him. But there were some tough times. Uh, I just don't want to give the impression that it's only uh, tough times. Oh, no. Yeah, Fair enough. And uh, I mean, there's some things in life you cannot learn in a simulator. And uh, for your dad to be so well-rounded 
because kids watch, right? They pay attention. It's not just what they're told and what they learn formally. Uh, they pay very close attention to how parents conduct themselves. And entrepreneurs, I mean, the, one of the many reasons why I have so much respect for the first generation self-made affluence is because they're so accountable. Again, no safety net, nowhere to yeah, hide. Yeah. And uh, they execute as best as they can, and they're always striving to refine and optimize what they do. So, okay, I've, I've got some placeholders here I want to come back to. I did want to jump to this this developing arena and community of, of professionals who are addressing this need. Who were some of your other early mentors beyond your mom and that psychologist? Who else did you study early yeah. to develop your own protocol and philosophy and approach? So I just turned 57 last uh, this past Wednesday. There are people who are in their maybe 70s, early 80s, who were the first wave of people who really started to make this a field. So I spent uh, 18 months, more or less, with Freda Herz-Brown, who her firm is Relative Solutions. She was a family therapist about 15 years ahead of me in the same town, Highland Park, New Jersey, where my therapy practice was. She saw the need for this, and she um, worked with Dick Beckhardt, who was a management professor at the Sloan School at MIT. He was working with really wealthy families and was getting stuck with the family dynamics. She was a family therapist with a family therapy training institute who saw wealthy families from a family dynamics piece, but she didn't know a lot about the management and finance side. And they got together and started a study group that eventually turned into uh, the Family Firm Institute, which is now 30 plus years in this in this field. And they have trainings for, for professionals of all orientation. So it's a really good thing for any of your folks who want to sort of further their education in this realm. Uh, the Family Firm Institute has some really good stuff. Um, she was a mentor before I worked for her around 10, 11 years ago. I actually worked for her for about a year and a half, learned a ton from her really smart woman, um, decided I like my own solo practice better and went back. Uh, Jane Hilbert Davis is another one who's written a book that's widely used around family business consulting. Uh, Courtney Pullen, uh, again, another person wrote a book in the field, really experienced. He went from the management world, but he was trained as a family therapist. And he took all of that and went into this world of working with family. So there was my kind of personal life, parents and other mentors, and then some really significant folks who were at the earliest stages of this new field, who were about 15 years ahead of me. And they were uh, formally mentors to me in some really significant ways. And, you know, when I worked for Fred Hearst Brown, we had clients where there was 100 or 120 cousins in the fourth or fifth generation. Can you imagine 120 cousins making a decision about do we give dividends or not give dividends? Do we keep the company or do we just sell it and all go our own ways? Because half of us never even met each other or most of us don't even know 90% of the rest of the group. Uh, you need governance. And uh, again, it's similar to the kind of governance you might think about when you're think, talk, thinking about an operating business, but it's governance for the family. So regardless of what they own, operating business, legacy wealth, you need types of governance. How do we come together as a family? When you get to that level where you've got 100 or more cousins, you need representative groups. You need a family council, for example, where you have members of the family. You decide where these family members, you know, how you decide who gets to be on the family council. And, and the family council is between the larger family ownership group and maybe the board of directors of the company. So the family council organizes meetings to help the huge family ownership group understand and articulate what they want. For example, we're willing to be patient. This is a long-term play. Please tell the board of directors. And then the family council says, hey, we met with the family ownership group. We're willing to be patient. This is a long-term play. Or we don't have the patience. Many of us want to get out, find a way to have, you know, 75 of those 100 people go their own way. The 25 remaining, we want to go forward and we're willing to be patient. But you need some kind of mechanism. You can't just have 100 people calling the CEO and, and going wild. And that's not unheard of. Okay, I want to jump ahead to the end and I'm going to put you on the spot because I'm curious, do you have any resources like a checklist or something that an advisor, a financial advisor could use to start to get his or her head around the concept of having a conversation with an affluent client about some of these issues? Is there something like that that you have? And we can talk more about that later if you do, but I'm just putting you on the spot. 
Yeah, yeah. No, I, I write a, a very popular blog, and I write about that from different angles. And I'm certainly happy to share some blog posts that are relevant. Um, another okay. thing is the Family Firm Institute, which I mentioned. Um, it's multidisciplinary. So regardless of whether you're an accountant, a lawyer, a psychologist, they have trainings in family business advising and family wealth advising. And it's really about learning about this field and how to jump in in a responsible way and really learn about the sort of the different elements and what it takes to go this route. Um, so, so I'm happy to send blog posts. The Family Firm Institute and those trainings are excellent. I also know I know accountants and attorneys personally who have gone to places like the Bowen Center for Family Therapy in D.C. or the Ackerman Institute for Family Therapy in New York City. These are family therapy training centers where they train family therapists, but they also have programs to teach lawyers, accountants, wealth managers how to facilitate families, how to understand enough about family dynamics that you really take yourself um, a good level above the accountants and, and attorneys and wealth managers that don't have that kind of training. So something as simple as having family meetings where you don't just have mom and dad, but you have the teenagers or the kids in their early 20s involved and knowing how to handle that and the kinds of things that come up. Um, so those are those are three sort of good opportunities for further okay. learning that I can put out there that are really specific. Okay, great. And I'll come back to that toward the end. Let's get back on track and give this some structure Yeah, back to W5 and the how. So let's just start with the table stakes on the what. Like, what is your value proposition? If, if you were to have a conversation with an affluent client, how would you position your value and your relevance to them sort of in, in a couple of minutes? What statement yeah. would you make? The, the pain is some some element around or some element of concern that the, the the financial wealth or the operating business or both survive in a really productive way for future generations and also that the family relationships are harmonious and that's really the the, the crux of it the folks who i'm talking with whether it's parents of kids or grandparents with grandkids or nowadays grandparents with great grand you know great grandparents with mm -hmm. several generations beneath them it's some some element of that in a nutshell they want the 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 business or the other investments that they put together and built to survive and to and to really be fruitful and 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 serve the family in productive ways and they want the family to be able to stay close and shared ownership of wealth strains both of those things, the, mm -hmm. the business and financial success and the family success. So people who reach out to me, look, I'm not a finance expert. I don't do investments or tax or trust in estates, but I, I, I sort of coordinate with all those professionals. And this piece that I do was missing for a long time. You had all these silos looking at, you know, how to protect wealth, how to avoid taxes, but nobody was saying, how do we build the family and make sure the family is strong? How do we prepare the inheritors or young children who are going to inherit or in 20 or 30 years, how do we prepare them for this? One piece of my background that I, I forgot to mention, which is really significant, I mentioned that as a therapist, I was trained to work with really young children. I developed something called the Purposeful Legacy Family Project. Mm -hmm. And I work with couples before they even have children and when the kids are under five years old. And this is plenty of people have gotten comfortable with 20-year-olds being involved in these discussions or even high school kids. Um, some people are dealing with middle schoolers. I'm a firm believer that if you're not doing the right things with two and three-year-olds, that you're not putting the proper foundation together for someone who's going to be a future steward of wealth. And I put a lot of time and energy into to helping educate families around what do you do with a two or a three-year-old to help them be a future steward of, of wealth. And it's really powerful stuff. Okay. Well, I want to come back to that because I'm thinking immediately, I don't have grandkids yet. Hopefully they start showing up at some point, Yeah, but I've got to assume that if I'm the founder of a company and I've got my own kids who are adults, and I understand that that's part of your value proposition, just emotionally, I'm probably thinking, okay, that is something I'd like to get out in front of, not just for my own business and my own legacy, but for my kids and for my eventual grandkids. Is that something that's put on the table and people acknowledge? Yeah, I've had I've had grandparents reach out to me to, to say, hey, I've, I've created a significant wealth. My kids grew up when we I was still creating the wealth. So the kids kind of grew up in the blue collar, hardworking and didn't really 
they weren't affected by the wealth until they were much older. But my grandkids are being spoiled silly. Can you talk with me mm-hmm. and my kids about their kids, my grandkids? And and different variations. Another variation of that is a lawyer who knows me and I don't think ever totally understood what I did, but he thought there was something cool about it. He was at a Tiger 21 meeting, which you might have heard of Tiger 21. He was at a meeting. And do you, are you familiar? Do you need me to explain it? Uh, explain it. I've heard of it, but yeah, feel free to explain it. It's a group of private investors. They pay a lot of money to be part of a group. There's a professional chair who's had real success in their own private investments. And it's groups of 10 to 15 people who do their own private investing and they help each other evaluate their investments. But even Tiger 21 is going way beyond the quantitative and they're getting into this realm. So I was I was given a talk there and I've gotten to know a bunch of them and a lawyer who's in Tiger 21 and knows me. And again, I wasn't sure he totally got it, but he in his group when I wasn't there, a new member was coming and was introducing himself. And this new member said, Hey, I'm when I was 28, I had my first, you know, liquidity event left with $30 million. I just had my second liquidity event at age 35. And I left with $600 million. My I have a one year old, and my wife is pregnant giving birth next week. All I can think about is how do I raise kids who are not assholes? Excuse my language, beep that out if necessary. But that's exactly what he said. The lawyer who knows me and never quite got it said, I think this is what Jeff's been talking about and said, hey, I know a guy who's this is his specialty. What do you do when you have a newborn baby and a one year old and incredible wealth and you want kids to just be down to earth, humble human beings? And that guy called me right away. So it could be the grandfather or it could be the father of a one year old whose wife's pregnant. He's like, this is dangerous stuff. And it is, Duncan. It is potentially dangerous if you don't do it the right way. But there is a right way. And there's plenty of good you can do. And that's some of my favorite engagements to to just to, to jump into is helping really enlightened parents who are like, let's think this through. I do appreciate the technical term, how you identified that one group, because I've met a few of those. And uh, <laughs> it is good to try to engineer an environment where that's avoided. Right. Um, it's interesting, though, I never really thought about it because I know a lot of the thought leaders in this space, like I, you know, Richard Watts, who wrote in Title Mania, they talk about, you know, Richard talks about, you know, how to avoid entitlement, but also how to unwind it if it's if it's seeped in. But I really do like this notion of sort of dig your well before you're thirsty, get out in front of it, get at it yeah. early. And I am fascinated by why affluence, especially self-made first generation, kicks that can down the road. And maybe it's because they're so fixated on getting to the inflection point that they put things off and they just assume that, you know, we'll get to it eventually. But your concept is let's get on it now. Yeah. And that's the way the field is going. I mean, 50, 75 years ago, you had to wait for somebody to die and a lawyer read a piece of paper that said who's going to be the president who's getting nothing and it was nobody was prepared nobody what was coming nobody knew what was coming over time in the last 30 years it's gotten more progressive and and now you know to the point where at least some people are willing to think about parenting before they have kids or when, when their kids are still toddlers um i think in the past there was a fear uh, of, uh you know if you talk about it nothing good will come of it and, and a lot of mm. people felt that. And so they said, it's better to say nothing, uh, but doing nothing doesn't really prepare anyone for what's coming their way. So you had people inheriting, whether it was 20 or 40 or 50 years old, unbelievable amounts of money with, they didn't know who the professionals were. They didn't know how to invest it. They didn't know what it meant for their lives. It was, it was really awful. So now there's really a, a, a the tide has turned and more and more mm-hmm. families are, are looking for this. They're looking for their professionals to either provide it in their firms, you know, for, and, and I see accounting firms are trying to buy practices like mine and colleagues of mine. And some mm-hmm. of them have sold out and gone and worked full time for an accounting firm or a law firm, or even the, all the big wealth management firms have some built-in family dynamics and governance. That wasn't the case 10 or 12 years ago. No. So it's it, people are catching on. Well, I got to assume that for a wealth management firm or a financial services team, having this degree of value add would amplify their fee worthiness because it is an unmet need and it is so emotionally important. But having structure and having a process, not just an intention, probably would make a big difference. So I'll, I'll come back to that. So got the what. Now let's talk about the who. Who is your ideal client? Who is the ideal family you work with? You know, I, ideally, it's um, say twenty million 
um, at the low end. So a minimum of 20 million of net worth and, and well, well above that. If you want to say ideal, it's, you know, a hundred million and above, but, but even 20 million at the low end, um, or, or an operating business, 25, 30 million in revenues. Again, that's at the low end. Ideal is a several hundred million or, or above. But, but having said that, um, I'm working with uh, a family now that the revenues of the business is, Five million. No one makes more than two hundred thousand in the second or third generation, and they were really had a big mess in terms of the dynamics between them. They weren't communicating. There was a lot of issues lingering from the founder, both the founder and his wife who died. And I was able to be really helpful to them. So I'm kind of giving you a wide range, but I was able to be really helpful th- to them, and they they were hungry enough to pay the fees. But if you want to say ideal, yeah, it's it's twenty million in, in net worth and above. 20 million in revenues of a business and and well above that. And, and the main thing is that you've got families who either currently own something together or they're going to be owning it together when somebody dies or sooner. And they really want this piece that I talked about earlier, which is they want the business or the financial wealth to grow and succeed. And they want healthy, productive future generations who get along and love each other and can work together. To position yourself as a subject matter expert while efficiently creating professional contrast in the eyes of your prospective clients, strategic partners, and ideal clients, deploy a podcasting initiative using the turnkey process developed by Proudmouth. Learn more at proudmouth.com. Do you aspire to consistently attract and keep great clients while driving the enterprise value of your business? Do you want to achieve professional contrast by supplementing your technical ability with a consistent client experience driven by best practices? The Blue Square Toolkit brings the proven Pareto Systems philosophy and process to life in a way that tethers your team so that you can competitor-proof your clients, gain their full empowerment, and attract quality referrals, all while restoring liberation and order in your life, and all in an intuitive, easy to use turnkey solution. Visit bluesquaretoolkit.com to get your 14-day free trial today. Uh, you touched on the when in terms of when you started. That's great. Was your dad, was the printing company sort of in its groove was that in the 80s yeah late 80s uh new york the real estate in new york was still cheap and new york was having a tough time and so you could afford there was it was the printing capital of the world on varick street and then as new york started to rebound prices went up for real estate and it just didn't make any sense we were renting and a lot of the printing left left new york um and my dad actually closed it down when he sort of retired he could have moved it to another part of the world he didn't want any of that so he just kind of walked away from it and there's very little printing left yeah of course with uh digital of course um so so i'm gonna add an element to the when and you touched on this too and that is when should somebody start to address this and i guess it's like anything else it's a form of pay yourself first, get on this early so that you can avoid the cautionary tale and, and uh, avoid those hassles, you know, when, when they're just really hard to unwind. So any thoughts on the when? You're not going to be shocked to hear me say the sooner the better. I wrote an article about conversations you can have with kids in elementary and middle school about the family business, which really relates to family wealth without an operating business as well. But it was an article written in Family Business Magazine. Happy to share it, link to it. Um, Mm -hmm. But it's elementary and middle school kids. And you're not not telling them, ideally, you're not telling them you're going to run this one day or you're going to own this one day. That's a big mistake. But you can say, hey, we have this. What do you think it would be like to work with your, your brothers and sisters together could you guys work together um do you think all three of you could could be the 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 president or the the head person can you have three head persons or do you think you need one you're not making this decision with an eight or nine year old but they're smart enough to say that's interesting it might be hard to make a decision with three people okay so what if we picked one of you 
how do you think the other two would feel? What do you think that would be like? And you're just giving them a little bit of a sense of what kinds of questions are coming their way. You're not making decisions at that age, but you're really letting them know you're part of something that's bigger than just you. And these are the kinds of things we're going to have to think through. Same thing with the example I gave about the guy who had a a pregnant wife and a one-year-old. That's a great one to start. Many people start later. So one of the clients that I just talked about, the 5 million in revenues business that, that was working with me, uh, the parents were 98 years old, 98 years old, still had full control, full ownership. Uh, the, the kids were 70, two brothers at 70 and 71, and they still didn't have full ownership. Both parents died during the first year of this engagement. At 98, you're probably not shocked, but talk about waiting till the last minute. Um, and then the third generation was already in their 40s, and they're looking at their 70-year-old father and uncle and saying, we're in our 40s. They're in their 70s, and they still don't have control, you know. It's just insane. So that is certainly not ideal. But but other other starting points was just really a better answer. I have people reach out. Mother and father have started a business, entrepreneurial couple. Their kids are in their 20s, in college, really doing a good job. And they're starting to think about, do we let the kids in? And, and what if all of them come in? What if, what if one comes in and the others don't? Help us think through how to do this. How do we be fair to the kids who don't work there, but we want them to have a piece of what we created? And so all those things are, are tricky. And there's conversations there that I'm sure that your listeners get into, you know, all the time. There's, there's really great technical ways to, you know, use insurance to help cover, you know, some kind of um, fairness um, and, and a state equalization with the, the kids who don't work there. But other, other families will give a third ownership to each of the three kids, even the two that don't work there. Well, what does that feel like when maybe the company gets sold and the guy who's been there for 20 years and grew it gets the same amount of his brother, sister, brother and sister who never set foot in there? So a lot of what I do when they, when they come at, come to me with the kids in the twenties who are still in college is let's think through some of these scenarios and look at the emotional ramifications and the family dynamic ramifications. You know, how is your, your, your daughter who grew it for those 20 years when the brother and sister didn't work there, how is she going to feel if this really, really grows 10 times and is sold and she gets the same third as the brother and sister that were never there? And usually when the other brother and sister are included in that conversation, they could step in. The the ones that aren't working there, and so they usually say, yeah, that doesn't sound fair. There must be a better way. And there's nothing better for future estate planning success than having the various beneficiaries in the room early saying, this is our definition of fairness, and we all agree. And that that's really a, a, a nugget in this, is when you have an open conversation as a family about all these scenarios and intricacies, and I can point out some of the pitfalls emotionally and business-wise, and as a family, with your professionals, you look at all the factors, tax, and all these other elements, including family and, 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 and family harmony, and then you put together a much better plan. Uh, there's a great article, if you Google... Harvard Business Review Fair Process. Harvard Business Review Fair Process. The first hit is an article, really short, and it's research on how people are much more satisfied when they are given a chance to be part of a decision uh, and and the discussion of a decision, even if they don't get their way. It's beautiful. Mm. And that's I think that's the essence of my work. When when people are given a chance to have a voice, even if it doesn't go they, their way, they're much more likely to be satisfied that they were pair, part of a process that felt fair and they felt heard. And that is so much of what I do. I like to say to the senior generation all the time, a voice does not equal a vote. Allowing your kids or grandkids to have some say in how they feel and what they think about what's going to happen to them, because you are doing things that are going to happen to other people, giving them a voice doesn't mean they get a vote but if you really listen to them genuinely and you're willing to even show some flexibility when you get a lot of feedback in the same direction that that's that's how you really protect yourself in the future it's not writing a better estate plan there's there's a lawyer in chicago that works with ultra high net worth families really good guy and he likes to say two parents who come to him desperate because their 20 year olds are messing up everything He'll say to them, I cannot do on paper what you have been unable to do in 25 years of raising your own children, which is a really harsh thing to say. You need to be pretty, mm. pretty darn busy to say that to a new client, like like so busy that you don't need them. But there's honesty right there. I, it's so true. I can't do on paper what you couldn't do in 25 years of raising your kids. And not enough technical professionals are saying that kind of thing. Too many 
families are asking for insane solutions on paper for problems that require some really skilled facilitation and and maybe the parents falling on their sword and saying, kids, we made some bad mistakes and we need to take a look at how we've set things up and really think this through. And not irreparable. We can unwind some of those, but I do like the... the Sometimes. Yeah. Well, I know last time we talked, you talked about things that are too far gone and we'll come to that in a second, but it's interesting. I know from personal experience, um, entrepreneurs tend to internalize some of their issues because they don't want to be a burden to their family. So they just don't, they just keep it inside. They don't want to spread it around. And uh, there's pros and cons to that, of course, but I, I'm getting to why the need exists for this. It's interesting Back when my kids were younger, I traveled extensively and I would take the entire family or I'd take one of my kids with me on a trip. And so I'd do my thing, but then we'd have some time to visit the city and just hang together. And it was great. I remember one of my kids, and he was at the time probably 10, and we went to New York and we had some downtime. We went down to Wall Street and I kind of explained to him what I did. And we went down and saw the fearless girl statue in the bull. And uh, I was telling him, this is this is the hub. And uh, he asked me about the bull. And I just sort of glanced off the fact that the horns point up, bull market, and the paw sweeps down. That's the bear market. Didn't give it a second thought. A couple of years later, he did a presentation or some type of uh, report on financial planning. And he referenced that. So obviously the experience and the message just happened to catch him at the right time. And yeah. my my takeaway from that is I don't think you can start too young with just acquainting them and engaging them in the process or in, in just the, the 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 learning of of that. So yeah. but here here's actually my question. I'm curious, is there a big distinction if you've got a client who's achieve their big event, big complex needs, big numbers, but the kids aren't going to be involved in the business, but there's obviously still a lot of money and it's going to go into motion at some point. Is that easier for you or does it make no difference? I mean, what's the distinction between somebody who's going to bring the kids into the business versus not, even though the money's big? Yeah, there's not necessarily a distinction. One of the things that tends to happen is when there's a big liquidity event, um, often the family wasn't living in such a wealthy lifestyle, mm -hmm. not, not all the time, but sometimes. And they may just have stuck with the sort of blue collar or even, you know, middle class, upper middle class kind of neighborhood they were in while the wealth was being built and grown. And so that's kind of an interesting dynamic where the kids don't, they really didn't see too much of it. Maybe they knew that, okay, we're solidly upper middle class, like our friends whose parents are lawyers or doctors, but then they don't realize, oh, there's a hundred million or a 200 million payday coming. And that's a much different lifestyle depending on how you use it. And they're already in their twenties or thirties and they've gone to high school and college and just knew that they were going to have to find their own way. And it wasn't really an issue. So often the, the kids have not been so affected by the idea of wealth and the kind of entitlement that it, it could bring. It doesn't always bring, but it could. So that's, that's one scenario when, when the kids are going to be in the business you know, it, it it depends on there's the family who has them, you know, involved from a very young age. When I do some of my talks about what do you do with a two-year-old uh, who's going to be a future steward of wealth, I have two videos of two-year-olds. One is a two-year-old boy who is so diligent in taking empty water bottles off the truck and and then carrying them into the to the little warehouse and piling them up in a really diligent way. It's unbelievable. The guy's two years old. And after he does one, he he goes back and he takes one in each hand. Like he's so hungry to contribute and he's two years old. He doesn't even know the meaning of money or anything. He's just like, this is my family. I'm going to contribute. Uh, the other video is a two-year-old girl whose parents got her a little like mini, a nice little mini kitchen in their kitchen. And she's chopping vegetables. She's washing vegetables. She's setting the table. She serves at a little table and chairs for her parents. She cleans it up. When she spills water on the, on the floor, she says, uh-oh. She laughs. She takes a little rag. She wipes it up. She makes her own mess. She cleans it up. And I show those two videos and I say to people, what did you just see here? 
that tells you everything you need to know about raising future stewards, future inheritors of wealth. And this is what it is. They don't even understand money, but they are getting a sense of this is my family. This is what we do. This is how we contribute. And and so the family, so, so to answer your question about the, the difference between, you know, maybe a, a, a big kind of payday versus the business, the fan, either way, the parents who are doing that stuff with young kids are going to have wonderful kids, even if they go off to be artists or doctors or accountants or, you know, deli owners. Um, if they're doing those little things, you're going to have someone who's honest, has integrity, is going to be responsible with whatever they're given. They're going to have a sense of appreciation and gratitude. And you know what? This is true, Duncan, for poor and working class families. 90% of what I teach in this realm of raising kids and wealth, 90% of it makes just as much sense for poor and working class families. It's the safety net that that high net worth and ultra high net worth families have a safety net that can actually be too strong. And so when little mistakes are are handled by parents jumping in and saving a little bit and then bigger mistakes as they get older are handled with a little bit more money mm-hmm. jumping in and saving things poor and working class families they don't have that reality comes calling and there is no safety net and they have to sink or swim so that that's really a big difference so much of what affects parenting and wealth is the safety net is too strong and you have to build in challenge and you have to build in resilience through difficult tasks that was an indelible lesson I got from the millionaire next door. And it was very sobering because Tom Stanley said that it's very common for first generation self-made affluence to shield the next generation from hardship. And, you know, I, I'm guilty of this where uh, I just wanted my kids to have fun and to play and to socialize and, you know, back to your point about the two-year-old with the water bottles, instilling that pride and productivity early, it's yeah. its cause and effect. You're not even showing them what the outcome is, just immersing them in the activity. And uh, I say that because there are times where I tried to delegate to one of my kids uh, a task, but I was so fixated on the quality control that I just said to myself, no, no, I'll, I'll just do it. And just to make sure the outcome was there, but I'm depriving them of the ability to immerse themselves in that productivity. And that's your point about the safety net, the unintended consequences becomes a hammock of complacency. And that's probably the birthplace for entitlement. That's great. Safety net becoming a hammock. I never heard that, but I love it. And that's a, that's really great. Did you just make that up? No, no, actually, I've heard that from a couple of different people, but the first time I heard it was around the same time I was reading The Millionaire Next Door, and it was actually Rush Limbaugh who talked about it. And uh, then I've heard it in a couple of other different um, contexts and athletics and things like that. But bottom line is leadership is about handing the torch, being at peace with the outcomes, and just instilling the pride and productivity and the the cause that leads to effects, the rest will sort of come into play. But I wanted to ask you where you're sourcing your clients, because my community is primarily, as you know, fee-for-service financial professionals. Mm-hmm. I keep saying to them, articulate your value around what a client wants, not what you do. What you do is commoditized. What they want is aspirational and just get them to connect how you get them to what they want. And bottom line is what a client wants is liberation and order. They want to be liberated to go live their life knowing that it's being addressed and they want order knowing that there's a process that they're not cobbling it together. Do you do you have a similar mindset in trying to help a client to understand the liberation and order that comes from addressing this early? Yeah, I mean, it comes up in the in the first uh, meeting. You, you know, a lot of sort of sales uh, theoreticians, sales uh, experts, 
will say that you really got to get to pain. People, humans aren't going to do much unless there's pain. And I'm a believer in that for my psychoanalytic education. And I've done a lot of work. A colleague of mine is a Sandler sales trainer, and I've done mm. a lot of work with him. And it, it's all about pain first. And so that comes up in the first meeting. A lot of the people that go through Sandler that I've seen or any other kind of sales training, they sort of struggle with how to get the pain to surface. With me, you know, I got to I got to put a lid on it usually there, there's so you know so much high pain early on when I'm having a discussion, and I talk about everything from parenting. I talk about parenting as a form of governance. So under the umbrella of mm. governance, that that's the liberation and the order. Are you mm. thinking about how you're raising your kids, how you're communicating from a young age as they get older? Are you teaching them about money, about the business, about the wealth? Part of how I put order on all that is this idea that you can talk about family wealth without talking about money. And you can talk about money without mentioning numbers. Really take that in. You can talk about mm-hmm. family wealth without even talking about money. And then you can talk about money without mentioning numbers. How do you talk about family wealth without talking about money? Tell the story of, like in my case, grandpa had the guts to run away. His whole family got killed. He didn't know that was going to happen. But grandpa ran away. He went to Mexico. He was were Jewish. He sold rosary beads in Mexico City because supposedly the Catholics weren't allowed to sell rosaries. So a bunch of Jewish guys got together and sold rosaries. He made enough money to get to America and he drove a subway for the rest of his life. And an, an interesting part of this story, and this is what I told my kids, um, but it's my point here is storytelling. How do you talk about family mm. wealth without talking about money? Tell them the stories. So grandpa drove a subway and you know what happened? He was able to retire at like 60 or 62. But the way that the New York subway system worked, you would get like 90% or whatever it was, 70%, whatever percentage of your final year working as a subway driver for the rest of your life. So what did, and there was no rule about what you did that final year. So these guys worked 70 hours, 80 hours a week for their final year working. And then they got 80% of that. And he got paid more in retirement every year than he ever did when he drove a subway. And it's kind of a cool money smarts lesson in there. But the guy went from Mm -hmm. genocide to, you know, financial brilliance. And the guy lived to 96. He lived 36 years on a salary he never, never should have been getting. That's how you talk about family wealth without talking about money. You tell stories about the things that people went through. And it's really important that they have an element of hardship, the genocide and escaping it, but also an element of success and the brilliance of working 70 hours and then living another 36 years. And there's research on this stuff about the importance of telling stories, the power of telling family stories but the need to also not just show the good parts, but also the the low parts and balancing it out. That's really powerful for kids. And that helps to put order, helping parents to tell stories, to talk to kids about what's happening, to prepare them incrementally for what's coming their way really helps parents put order on that. Well, I've been saying, I totally agree. I've been saying for years, facts tell, stories sell. And that's not to trivialize someone's technical ability, but a prospective client, if you want your value to be bought, not sold, like you're not convincing them, but they're buying in. If you tell a story that they can identify with and relate to, even in just in their inside voice, they're drawn, they're, they're attracted to the ability to address that. I really like what you said there about not even getting into the numbers. I remember saying to a, a kid of a friend, we were talking about financial independence. And I said to him, I said, financial independence is when you get to a point where your money makes more money than you do. And no number. It wasn't like, oh, you got $5 million or whatever. It was just a concept yeah. of competing for income. Like you, you generate an income based on your effort and your labor, put your money to work and, you know, Anybody who's read The Richest Man in Babylon, fundamentally sound book for youngsters around the concept of pay yourself first and averaging and all of that. But that's the the sort of the goal. So I really like that. I'm curious, back to how you engage a family. I was just at a conference in San Diego, and I was talking to an advisor about the difference between a financial plan and financial planning. So financial plan is the document, the blueprint, sort of the checklist, all the things that we need to address 
Um, financial planning is where the future pacing comes in. These are the mile markers. These are the things that we want to get out in front of and address as your life unfolds and your needs become more complex. How do you uh, get someone bought in within a family, especially when you're in the intergenerational uh, aspect of the conversation? How do you engage everybody? So, you know, the pain piece, like I said, it comes up early. Whoever reaches out, it could be the, the youngest member of the youngest generation. It could be the oldest member of the senior generation. But there's there's pain around. We're going to lose the money that has been created. We're going to lose the business, both money and business and the family piece. So uh, up front, you know, it's interesting when, when someone refers someone to me, it's usually a single person writing an email. And I typically say in a very polite way, the best way to really start this process is to get the, all the significant people. I mean, yes, if it's 100 cousins, we're not getting on a Zoom call. But if I can get, you know, five, six, seven of the key people or if it's smaller, three, four people together on a call there's no charge. I'll take an hour. Let's see if you like what I'm about and if I think I have something to offer. And then we have that conversation. And it's it's immediately clear at the end of that hour if they're interested in me oh, and if I have something to offer them. And then we're, we're really off and running. The next thing I do is before I, and I tell them, I'm still not agreeing to work with you guys. I need to learn more than just an hour can tell me. I'll spend a half day live. And this is all over the country. I ask for a, 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 a nominal fee, Pay my travel expenses and I'm going to come and I'm still not agreeing to work with you and I'm not asking you to agree to work with me, but I'll spend a half day. And that's when the magic happens. That's when I can show them how I can help them have conversations. I can facilitate conversations they never thought they were going to have, certainly not this early in, a, in an engagement where they haven't even hired me. It's not even an engagement. And that's where the magic happens that half day. I can meet with the senior generation, the junior generation. I can interview siblings separately. I really get what I need to know. Early in my career, I would do the one hour free Zoom call and then I'd send a proposal and I didn't I really didn't know enough. This has been a real game changer for me in terms of setting things up. And then by the end of that half day, I can say, I can take 20 minutes and say, here's here's how you got into the situation. Here's the history of your family. Here are the dynamics at play. I can also alleviate a lot of the shame. Families typically feel shame mm. and embarrassment that, look, we have all this wealth and success financially, but our family's a mess. Well, every family's a mess, so you're not alone there. But let me explain to you, it, there's something different about families that have a business or, or wealth of some sort. And I can alleviate the shame so that they don't leave beating themselves up and they actually feel like, oh, this is normal stuff. And there's a way for us to manage it. And then I start to lay out some of the things and then I write a proposal, but I'm sort of helping them see that what you feel ashamed of is sort of normal for families in this situation, but we know how to go forward from here. And here's how right. I can help. Back to the liberation and order, but uh, yeah, I love yeah. that. In that, it's not a sales encounter. It's a it's stewardship. Uh, it's very pure, and uh, it's not a tactic around playing hard to get when you have a fit process. It's let let's make sure there's an alignment between what yeah. you need and your willingness to actually act on what I'm going to prescribe. I love that. It's funny you talk about the pain point. You, you probably heard the the whole premise that in in business development and marketing, it's problem, agitate, solve. So present a problem, agitate the problem, and then offer to solve the problem. And uh, I had a flashback of a financial advisor who was early trying to get his son to start thinking about coming to work for dad in the family business, and uh, it just wasn't landing. The the kid uh, in his if I remember correctly, mid to late teens, got a job and he got his first paycheck and there was tax taken off. And so he had sticker shock looking at his stub and it's like, what? He did not understand the concept of tax. And it opened up a conversation where the dad said, look, that's a big part of our process is tax avoidance, minimizing tax and then, of course, the conversation led to not just as you're earning the money, but once the numbers get big and more complex and goes into motion, and um, it, it just built some predisposition amongst the kid to start thinking about all the nuances of money. So problem agitate solve is a very good model. Yeah. Um, this is a great conversation. You covered a lot of ground, but in the spirit of time, 
where can people find you and where can people find your resources so not only they can get to know you, but they can actually deploy some of this? Because I'm just going to say, for financial advisors who want to go up market and be attractive to very attractive clients, you've got to go beyond just the technical ability of asset management and add in this qualitative deliverable. It's becoming the biggest unmet need for sophisticated, high-caliber clients. So, Jeff, where can someone go to consume your thought leadership and your content and then perhaps even uh, develop a relationship with you? Yeah, I I would just add, you just kind of reminded me that I do coaching for financial advisors and trainings for firms, which I just didn't mention that. And I just recently, it's a firm I'm sure everyone on this call would know. uh, They're they're an RIA. They consider themselves a family office in New York City. You probably would know them. And two of the top advisors were noticing that they just weren't landing as many of the prospects as they had hoped. So they were getting a good pipeline, but they were only maybe landing half. Well, they would love to get three quarters or more. And so we had a conversation and there was something psychological going on around wealth with the, 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 the half that wasn't engaging. And I had some ideas about how I could coach them before they had these sort of sales calls, prospect calls. And after, you know, usually they, they take a few calls. After each call, I would jump in with them and sort of coach them on some of the psychological aspects of what was happening that they weren't seeing and where the opportunities were to engage. And that's, that's, that's a really recent thing that, um, I just, Mm. That kind of an engagement. I do the training and education a lot. That specific setup was new and really interesting because of the way it came together. In terms of how to get in touch with me, it's, you know, Jeff Savlov, S-A-V-L-O-V. The website is blumandsavlov.com. And that's really the best way. I've, I've redid my website a few years ago. So there's a lot of educational blogs. There's articles. There's case studies. Um, and there's just a lot you can learn about the field. Like I was talking about the Purposeful Planning Institute, the Family Firm Institute. And, you know, there's a lot of good stuff on there. Great stuff. Uh, and we'll put links in the uh, description as we distribute this conversation. It's interesting. I've been saying to advisors for a long time to outsource as much as you can to liberate yourself to go deeper into areas that really matter with the client. Uh, I know there are some advisors that are pursuing adding these designations into their skill set, which is fantastic. But I, I have to think that if I'm a financial advisor trying to build out my business, it's probably not a bad idea to just engage other service providers like yourself into their process yeah. And then communicate that to your their clients as a value-added service and an introduction they can make. Thoughts on that? Yeah, no, it's really a collaborative field, both the Family Firm Institute and the Purposeful Planning Institute that I mentioned a couple of times. Um, the word collaboration is everywhere on, on sort of their websites and their their educational stuff because no one professional can sort of do all of it. So it's so important to collaborate and, and understand the kind of client you want to get, how you want to serve them, and then, and then establish relationships with people who have the expertise if you don't have it or, you know, you don't want to take the time to get it. Any financial advisor can do some of the things I'm suggesting, like the Family Firm Institute certificates in wealth advising or business advice, family business advising. But, you know, if you want to sort of do the work, at the level that I'm at, you know, a psychoanalytic certification, family therapist, 30 years of doing it, it that's going to, you really want to take 30 years or do you want to collaborate? So knowing what you're good at, knowing what you want to learn and what you want to take on and then use collaboration uh, to grow from there. And I just want to remind everybody about the balance. Uh, everybody talks about the trillions of dollars that are going to be tra- changing hands in the next 10 years from one generation to the next, which is big. And you want to have an approach and a process that can address those issues. But the qualitative side, avoiding the cautionary tales and being an exemplary model in terms of how a family got out in front of these big issues and addressed them as best they could following a sound philosophy and process, uh, this is going to become something that's going to be very substantial over the next 10 years and beyond. So. Jeff, I really appreciate your time. This has uh, exceeded my expectations in terms of the ground we covered, and uh, we'll have to have you back. I do want to hear some stories about wins and setbacks on our next conversation, but this is a very good start. Thanks very much. 
Yeah, Duncan, thanks for having me. Happy to come back. And I got stories. I mean, if I have nothing else, I've got stories. Yeah, no doubt. So let's get those organized for part two of this conversation down the road. And Scott Hamilton, if you're listening, thanks for the introduction. You were right. I'm glad you were so persuasive because this is such a great area to cover. So thank you. We'll talk to you next time and uh, go Devils. No, go Rangers. Rangers, Rangers. Let's go Rangers. I, Take I care. Think, thanks, Duncan. I think I think it might be a little uh, a little quiet for the Rangers going forward. Yeah, it's been quiet for most of the last hundred years, except for one little blip. <laughs> thanks to the Oilers, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Because you mean all the guys that the Rangers took from the Oilers? Oilers? Yeah, Wasn't yeah. it six or seven former Oilers on that yeah. cup-winning team? I just had this conversation with someone. Yeah, it, it was really, let's just take a team that can do it and buy them, <laughs> you know. But there's justice because even though the Rangers have the money to do that, they rarely, uh, you know, win the cup or even do all that well. So I don't feel Okay, like- let me see, uh, test your memory because I was just at a little uh, party yesterday and Martin Jelena was there who was on the Vancouver Canucks team. And I believe, was it game seven that Valerie or uh, Pavel Bure hit the crossbar that could have sealed the game? Was that to tie the game or to seal the game? And then the Rangers came back and won. Do you remember? No, I remember Pavel Bure. I remember all that. Didn't, didn't he also have a penalty shot in, in that series? That was incredible. And Mike Richter stuck his leg out and, and stopped oh, it. I and like right. the save heard around the world. I remember both of those, but no more no more detail than that. Um but yeah, it was a little cheesy that they just bought the championship team and stuck them on. But I was still happy to win one. Neil Smith, the GM, was very open about it. When he was interviewed after they won, he said, I'd like to thank the Edmonton Oilers. So I admire him for that. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's okay. Funny. Awesome, yeah. Jeff. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, man. See you next time. Thank you for listening to Always On with Duncan McPherson, where our objective is to enable professionals to always be working on their business and on themselves. Want to learn more about Duncan and his team? Visit ParetoSystems.com. Don't forget to click the follow button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the hosts and or guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Pareto Systems. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. This podcast is powered by Proudmouth, the influence accelerators. If you're like me and want to spend more time educating people and less time selling, Proudmouth helps turn Main Street experts like you into trusted mainstream authorities. They will help amplify your influence over a growing audience of magnetically attracted fans. Visit proudmouth.com to learn more.